Hi, Olivia. Katie, we're back for season two. Yes, we've been hard at work and we have so much cool stuff in store for this season. And I just want to say thank you again to you and all our listeners for making this podcast happen. Me too. The reception of this podcast has been beyond any of my expectations. Yeah, it's been really exciting. It feels like people are on board with hearing these stories now and getting them out there. Yeah, and a huge thank you to our listeners for your donations, for your support, for sharing the podcast with your friends. And we hope that we can continue to tell more fascinating stories of women you've never heard of. Amen. All right, Katie. Picture a magician. Okay. What does a magician look like? He's tall and lanky. He's wearing a top hat, obviously. He's got some kind of cool curly mustache. A black suit. Maybe he's got a cape. Hmm. Interestingly, you immediately said he. Right? Yes. (laughs) A magician is a man. Right. He is. Today, we are going to talk about Adelaide Herman. She was one of the most famous magicians in American and European history. She? She. And you've never heard of her? No, I have never heard of her. And yet, she was as famous as Houdini in her day. Wow! She was incredibly influential in the world of illusions and stage magic. She was a magician, not the assistant. You're saying she was the main act? Actually, she started as an assistant to her husband, Alexander Herman, the great Herman. She was one of the most famous touring magicians of magic's golden age. And then, after her death, she inexplicably disappears. I'm Katie Nelson. And I'm Olivia Mickle. And this is What's Her Name? Fascinating women you've never heard of. So, to learn more, I talked to Paul Draper. Hi there, I'm Paul Draper. I'm a cultural anthropologist, but also a full-time traveling magician, mentalist, and entertainer performed all over America and Europe. And I'm excited to sit down and talk with you. I was really excited to get to talk to Paul Draper about this, since the insights that a working magician can give into her life are totally different than anything that a historian can give. That's cool. And plus, probably a lot of people listening have seen him on TV. Yeah, you've seen him on TV, on the History Channel's Houdini documentary, on Home and Family, on Pawn Stars, or you may have seen him perform in Vegas or at the Magic Castle. Awesome. So Adelaide Herman was born in 1853 in London. Her father was a Belgian immigrant, and she trained as a dancer as a child. Hmm. She moved to New York, intending to marry an American actor. A specific American actor, not just an American actor. Okay. She's engaged to an American actor and she's moving to New York (laughs) to marry him. And she meets Alexander Herman and marries him instead. (laughs) He is already a well-established magician. He and his brother were extremely famous as the great Herman, both of them. (laughs) People know they're not the same person, but they're sort of interchangeable, right? So Uh. while one brother is in Europe, the other brother is in the U.S. and then they'll switch. (laughs) And in fact... The person that you described as what a magician looks like. With the cape and the... the cape and the top hat and okay. the... Okay, yeah. That is Alexander Herman. Oh. 
that is the Herman look, right? And so that's how famous they were that in New York, when Alexander Herman died, the New York newspapers said magic itself has died. Thousands showed up. So they get married in 1875. And they actually, the mayor of New York performed their wedding. Ooh, high class. She begins working as his assistant. She's a dancer. And so she's performing, entertaining, distracting. Mm-hmm. You know, she doesn't seem to have been a traditional assistant. She is much more of a co-magician. It's not like some man crafted her to be the variety act. You know, it was her completely in and of herself. One of my favorite stories is that she wanted him to perform an effect that's known today as Sands of Egypt or Sands of the Desert, where the magician takes a bowl of water. The water, as he spins his hands in the water, becomes black. A handful of blue sand is thrown into the water. handful of yellow sand, handful of red sand thrown in. The water is mixed and mixed and mixed. And then the magician can reach in and produce a hand of dry red sand, a hand of dry blue, and reach in a hand of dry yellow sand. Now, today you can buy this in most toy stores. But then, <laughs> then it was exceptional. She loved this effect, still performed by many magicians today, and wanted him to perform it which he did once. It's written in the journals that he uh, performed it one time and it didn't work. And he came out with a handful of mushy mixed colored sand, (laughs) turned and glared at her off in the distance and and never did it again. But she did have the artistic power, right, to have him try new illusions to do new things early on in their career. She had been an artist before him. Mm -hmm. So it's not like He was the sum total of her training and ability and passion and desire. This is something she brought Mm -hmm. with her into the act and then carried on with after. They tour all over the U.S. and Europe. They're performing in every famous theater. They're having a wildly successful career, and he dies. He has a heart attack on the train and dies. Wow. When Alexander dies, Adelaide has almost nothing. Oh. They have spent extravagantly. They own the yacht. They have a private train car, houses full of artifacts and no money. She knows that the Herman name is really, really valuable. And so she is trying to find a way to keep the act going. She recruits one of Alexander's nephews to take over the show. He's not great. He's like the pretty good Herman. (laughs) This nephew then decides he doesn't need her. He's going to go off and do his own show, which which he ended up doing. And, and that show, because he wasn't as great, shrunk and shrunk. But she eventually said, no, I will be the star of this show. She knows that she's not going to be taken seriously. Mm-hmm. She's a woman. She's a former assistant. If she really wants to be successful in this, she's going to have to prove to everyone that she really is as good as her husband was. So the very first show she stages, she is performing a trick that she had spent most of her life trying to convince her husband not to do. The bullet cat. Yeah, I read about that, that she begs him to stop, and then immediately turns around and does that. Immediately does it within one month of his death. (laughs) Uh, What a sensational piece. I mean, Penn and Teller perform this twice nightly in Vegas Mm -hmm. right now. But they are pointing the guns at each other, and they both catch one bullet. Purportedly, Adelaide Herman had six militiamen 
in whatever town she went to, take up rifles and point them at her. Many magicians have died performing this actually quite dangerous, legitimately dangerous, legitimately dangerous illusion. Now we're really cynical about stage magic and we just kind of assume that everything that's happening up there is a fake, not just a trick, but it's a fake. And so we're not concerned, right? We're never concerned that he's actually going to die when he buries himself alive. Yeah. There are different ways to do the bullet catch, but all of them are life-threatening. And she not only does it, she catches six bullets on stage. Well, I guess that's what you have to do if you're going to win everybody over. Do the hardest, scariest trick. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. If you're a woman in the literal boys club, yeah, you have to prove that you can do the most dangerous, the most difficult trick. Wow. This is a constant problem, how difficult it is for a woman to become a magician, how difficult it is for her to stay in the world of magic. Only 8% of performance magicians are women, even today. Even today, the sole function of women on stage to literally sexually distract the audience. And to be attacked, cut her in half, slice her to pieces, put swords through her, and then resurrect her. And have her be oh so grateful. Right. Uh, and still perfectly unmarked. And still perfectly unmarked, unharmed. It's it's a very strange cycle of abuse, the average illusion yeah. show. Now, sawing a woman in half in America actually came from a real story of someone killing a woman, what? cutting her in half that way. You know, I, I don't do any of yeah. that in my show, but it has been the sort of core of American magicians, certainly since P.T. Selbit and, you know, in this time period. Mm. <laughs> Creepy. Isn't it horrifying? I had never thought about it before. Uh-huh. Most magic is written with a male magician in mind and a male's standard clothing, right? A tuxedo has a lot of pockets in it. Right. And a lot of places to hide things. Mm. And so does a woman need to dress in a tuxedo to perform? Well, if she's not going to dress in a tuxedo, then she on her own needs to step away from hundreds of years of magic and come up with her own methods. Mm. I mean, think about how much more difficult that is than than a man who can put on a tuxedo and just copy the act that's been published for him. You know, as Paul Draper points out, that can lead to wildly creative acts. Many women magicians performing now are pushing the boundaries of magic really fast and really far because they're forced to reinvent everything. There's a great magician in London by the name of Sophie Evans. I believe she's moved recently to Las Vegas in Sweden. Maulin Nelson, wonderful. In San Francisco, a female magician and, and juggler and performer by, with the last name Banner. In Las Vegas, Luna Shimada, Jen Kramer, Arian Black. I'm just off the top of my head here, uh, right now performing in The Illusionist, just finished on Broadway, The Clairvoyance is a husband and wife act, The Evisons, Mark Kalin and Ginger, Kyle and Misty Knight, one of the librarians of the Magic Castle, Lisa Cummings. She has her own show of historical magic. It is so difficult, just as it is also difficult for African-American magicians. Mm. It has been very dominated by... Caucasian male magicians, though it has been very open to Jewish magicians, right? David Copperfield, Houdini, myself, all Jewish, right? Mm -hmm. But it has been kind of a closed circuit of secrets Mm -hmm. that has been hard to penetrate. 
I really love that she didn't just get sucked into, okay, now I'm going to be Alexander Herman, girl version. She said, if I have to be a magician, I'm going to be my kind of magician. Even though the Herman name was one that filled seats, she was an accomplished performer on her own right. Otherwise, how do you perform until you're in your late 70s, you know, on major stages, unless you are a person who is delighting audiences? The wow factor of her shows are through the roof. She's doing unbelievable shows, and she's also leveraging all of this other experience she has as a dancer, as an entertainer. You know, as an assistant, you're uniquely attuned to what makes the audience enjoy this show. Because most of what an audience enjoys in a magic show is not the magic. As the person who's been the distractor, I think she's probably pretty uniquely tuned into everything else that goes into a big stage show. How did she dress? Did she wear a top hat and a cape and a suit? No, she wore really fabulous gowns and she continues dancing while doing the magic as well. She's maintaining both roles. Cool. She was billed in vaudeville as the queen of magic, right? Her show was called Magic, Grace, and Music. She had a show, the Noah's Ark show. She had all these animals and she produced two of each. Two, two ducks, two doves, two lions, two tigers. The lions and tigers are actually dogs in headpieces. Lighting was different. We know that she performed the uh, cremation where she would be put in a box, lit on fire, mm. and all that would be left would be bones, and then she'd reappear. She danced in the show for a very long time, and she made all the dancers vanish, and, and in a puff of smoke, Satan appeared on stage. I mean, she was performing illusions, that major illusionists and magicians are still performing in their shows today. So at this time, Adelaide Herman is also debunking mediums and spiritualists, both with Alexander before his death and then throughout her solo career. This is the height of the spiritualism craze. And they're like exposing their tricks and their lies. Exactly. They felt pretty strongly that it was really unethical. That tricking people into believing that they're really talking to their dead family members is an entirely different thing than entertainment and people knowing that they're being tricked. (laughs) It is our job to to a public good Mm -hmm. that these people are being conned and duped and abused by magicians of bad desires, Mm -hmm. right? and we have to reveal some of our secrets. Mm. That's the bad thing about magic, is all magic tricks play upon several basic flaws to the way we as human beings perceive reality. So unless uh, we evolve in some very different way very quickly, there are a limited number of magic tricks. We have to understand in this time period, spiritualism was the fastest growing religion in the world. Mm. It was taking America by storm. 10% of Americans claimed that their religion was spiritualism. Even Abraham Lincoln's wife, uh, Mary Todd Lincoln, held seances in the White House after her son had died. 
Alfred Russell Wallace, the co-creator of the theory of evolution with Darwin, was a avid believer in spiritualism. So it was this mix of the new science and religion of spiritualism as we move from a agricultural society to an industrial society, as we had these huge massive deaths after the Civil War, it is the thing. Houdini famously went around debunking spiritualists, but so did Adelaide Herman. At this time, most of the spiritualist mediums in America were women. This is a place where due to the Victorian sensibilities of the mm -hmm. woman being more in tune with her emotional self, more able to be possessed by demons, more susceptible to the powers of darkness, it gave them sort of a stepping stone to say, I'm being possessed by the other and able to speak for. Many of the women mediums gathered thousands and thousands of fans. So that gives them this much, like, here's this access that they have to this whole new field, librarian and medium. <laughs> Which would you choose? Uh, medium. <laughs> no, Me I'm a librarian. I would choose librarian. <laughs> I would choose medium. I think that would be really fun to be a medium, especially if you could convince yourself, like so many of them must have, that you're helping these people. Right. You're making them feel better. You're bringing them comfort. Yeah. That just sounds like fun to me. I think it would have been a blast. I don't think ethically I could have brought myself to do it. Maybe I would have been a nonprofit medium. <laughs> it was an interest of Adelaide Herman to debunk these spiritualists and to show that they were using magic tricks. Because she had a background in escapology, and so much of spiritualism is, there's no way I could ring the bell. I was locked in chains. <laughs> She was able to show that they were getting in and out of these chains to ring the bell and that they were using magical tricks in, in order to take people's money and minds. Mm. Oh, wow, that's amazing. I always just pictured it like the table is levitating and they magically know stuff that they wouldn't normally know. Right. But they're like physically making stuff happen yeah. that no, no, no human could have done. Right, exactly. And there is that, oh, right? Wow. That the table is levitating, but I was tied to the chair, but you weren't anymore. Yeah. Uh, huh. Most of these women were really accomplished escapologists. Wow, that's awesome. Especially Adelaide Herman specifically was really well trained. The crematorium, she's escaping from this coffin that's on fire. She is an expert at escapology. And so she knows exactly how these mediums are getting out of these chains. And they're revealing those things at great detriment to her own career. I had no idea. It actually kind of makes me respect him more because it means they had to oh, yeah. practice over and over and over and over again to be able to pull them off. Yeah. That's kind of cool. They were really clever yeah. magicians. Wow. They debunked some pretty famous, pretty big deal mediums. Oh. Some are graceful. Yes, you caught me, and some are pretty angry. So maybe Alexander Herman didn't have a heart attack. Oh. What if it's some vengeful medium who put a curse on him or sent an evil spirit yeah. to wipe him out? Yep. Well, the ones they debunk couldn't send vengeful spirits. Oh. <laughs> Good point. Arthur Conan Doyle, the author of the 
Sherlock Holmes books was the St. Paul of spiritualism, saying that his wife had real natural powers. He even argued with Houdini that Houdini was using spiritualism powers to dematerialize and rematerialize outside boxes. <laughs> Imagine what an impossible situation this puts Houdini in. What, are, what is the answer to this? No, I know exactly how I'm escaping from the water tank. Right. He can't yes. challenge that statement, but he seems to have been convinced that Houdini thought he was using tricks, but really he was actually a medium. Okay. And that he was misunderstanding what he himself was doing. I, oh, I can't understand. I don't understand. Yeah, I don't yeah. understand. As an Arthur Conan Doyle nerd, as you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. if he said it, he believed that Houdini mm. was doing this, which is much more confusing. Now for something completely different. <laughs> I have a question for you, Katie. When you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? Uh, I think I wanted to be a writer or maybe a teacher. I kind of went back and forth between those two. Oh, wait, I forgot. Then I really wanted to be a photojournalist. I remember that. Yeah, I was obsessed. I had all these like National Geographic photo books and and I got a fancy camera for Christmas. The first year of college, my very first class I signed up for was a photography class. Hmm. But I was on the wait list. And back then, you go to class on the first day and you go up to the professor and you say, will you please sign me into your class? And then they sign a form. (laughs) And I did that. And the professor said no. (laughs) And I never signed up for a photography class ever again. I guess I it wasn't like out of spite or anything. I just got distracted. Yeah, I've found so many other passions and loves that I just never bothered taking another photography class. (laughs) So it's kind of weird, like, now that you have inspired my reflection, (laughs) my life trajectory really changed a lot because that professor didn't want to sign me into his class. I was anticipating the payoff of that story being, and I was too introverted to go and ask the teacher, so it never happened. Oh, that's a highly likely scenario. (laughs) (laughs) That's actually really perfect, though, because what I want to talk about is how often... We talk about our lives as if you can plan. Mm. Make a plan for your life and follow that plan. And that's how your life is going to be. And I don't know anyone who made a plan for their life and that's how their life went. Do you know anyone? No. I think the life I have now, I never would have dared plan. Mm. And so had I like planned my life and stuck to it. I wouldn't have dared to dream big. I would have planned something practical and achievable or something like that. Yeah, I'm glad I didn't plan. You feel like (laughs) you have to plan reasonably. Yeah. That's really interesting you saying that because I have realized that I often use your life as sort of a reference point about how you can just own your life. (laughs) And this is a weird conversation to have on a (laughs) podcast, but like, I really (laughs) admire the way that you and Mark have just said, we want these things in our life and we're going to get them. (laughs) And we're going to get them in ways that are very unconventional and that other people might think are impossible, impossible or irresponsible. And yet, wait, are you calling me irresponsible? No. And that's that's (laughs) that's my point. You said I want to spend months every year in Europe. And you do. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't have to take the path. If you were planning that, you'd say, I want to spend months in Europe every year. 
Therefore, I need an extremely high-paying job. Right. I have to sacrifice so much of my daily life yep. to something that I hate. And then never have time to go to Europe. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I couldn't agree with you more. <laughs> so, what does all this have to do with anything? Right. <laughs> I think that Adelaide Herman's life is the perfect example of a different way of thinking about this. I think that we vastly underestimate the power of innovation and adaptation mm. that happens when life just throws something at you and you have to change. I love that. If she's going to survive, she has to be outstanding. And so she just is. Wow. You know, we often heap a lot of praise on people who we see as single-mindedly pursuing a dream. Yeah. And we miss the incredible innovations that happen by people who have greatness thrust upon them. Yeah. Or as a Taoist philosopher would call it, the wu wei. Exactly. Going with the flow. It imagines you're in a river and it's flowing. You could doggedly pursue something upriver that you already decided you wanted to get to. Or you just look at what's around you, assess the situation and decide... You want something downstream. Yeah, and I think this is an interesting contrast to Mary Lou Williams, right, from our last season. Ah, yeah. That she would die if she did not get to do this thing that was important to her. And so she did spend her life swimming upstream Mm. and eventually landed maybe in a place that she felt good about. But Adelaide Herman says, okay, the nephew is a wash. I guess it's me. Huh. All those innovations that she comes up with are very interesting because she could also have just said, fine, I will be another Herman brother. Mm. And she doesn't. She says, no, I'm going to be me and do this act. And I'm going to be amazing so that people Mm -hmm. have to take me seriously. And I will not give up the part of this job that I love because her dream from a young girl was to be a dancer. Oh, yeah. And so she continues to dance in her own show. And maybe because this is something that she's just dropped into, she feels free to say, I will be the magician. I will also dance in my own show because that's what I love. And I will continue to do it. She's already breaking the rules. So why not just construct the life she really wants? Exactly. I love that. I mean, she did this for so long. She continues this solo magic career for 30 years. That's not something you do if you're just trying to feed yourself. Yeah. I really like her. It's also interesting to me how this podcast came to exist. Mm. That both of us feel this really strong passion for bringing to light these people who have been ignored by our popular culture. Mm -hmm. We couldn't have decided 10 years ago that we were going to do a podcast. So much of how people's lives turns out is catching that wave at the right moment. Personally, I feel like the art of living is in seeing and catching waves as Mm. they arrive. Oh, I totally agree. It seems like if there is a secret to happiness, it's the ability to perceive all the waves that are rushing by around you all the time. 
Mm. And she she consciously chose yeah. which waves would really make her the happiest, which ones she really wanted, rather than just like letting whatever the nearest wave was pick her up. Okay, but then how do we explain this? She was wildly popular, and yet her ultimate trick is disappearing at her death. She's wiped out of the historic memory. Hmm. Why? Why did everybody forget? Yeah, I I was really baffled by that. How could this happen that this really famous person just is erased? She doesn't completely cease to exist when we go to the magic circle or magic castle. There tends to be a poster of her uh, when she was young and performing as as a assistant. She gets sort of wrapped into the whole story of the Herman dynasty. Mm. When she performed longer. She performed than longer. Of them. Yes. Her story seems like this is prime fodder for a film. I'm really shocked that someone has not made a movie starring probably Scarlett Johansson or something. Right. That right. should be making this movie. So actually, the day before this episode launches, uh, Paul Draper sent me photos of an incredible bronze bust that it was sculpted by Joey Orozco and art directed by Mike Elizalde. And it's a part of Elizalde's collection called the Masters of the Golden Age of Magic. And the collection is on permanent loan at the Magic Castle. So at least in this way, Adelaide Herman is finally joining the illustrious company wow. that she belongs in. Another reason why there may not be a lot about Adelaide Herman is so much of magic museums, magic recreations is, this is the water torture chunk that was owned by Houdini. These are the playbills and the ephemera and the posters of Alexander and Carter. Here are the material remnants. And as a historian and collector, I have a need to promote the individual in order to up the value of right. the object. Ah, that's marvelous. Ah, that's a wonderful form of historical memory to do it yeah. so that your stuff is worth more. I love that. Right. There's there's the financial motivation, yeah. which is really effective. Yeah. Okay, but so why isn't anyone invested in her memorabilia? Yeah, it seems like her memorabilia would be special and unusual. In 1926, her warehouse burns down. No! All of her stage sets, all of her costumes, all of her animals. No! Burned to death. Everything. In her 70s, she had a terrible fire, an accident, that destroyed all of her illusions, killed almost 60 of her trained animals. Oh. She was able to save one cat named Magic, I believe, mm -hmm. and, and one dog that she used to dress as a lion or tiger. She has these incredible sets and it's all gone. That. Which means there's no memorabilia for anyone to collect. There's no financial incentive for anyone to care about her. And so no one does, she disappears. So that was the end of her career then. Actually, that's the cool part. She then, in her 70s, rebuilt and started again. She launches a new show in her late 70s. Really? She's performing up until a few months before she dies. Wow. 
to still great acclaim. That's awesome. She died at the age of 79 of pneumonia and is buried along with her husband at the Woodlawn Cemetery in New York. At the end of Adelaide's life, they found in her room the silver cigarette case that her husband had been holding as he died in the train car and the tattered cigarette that uh, he had been trying to lift to his lips. She kept that forever. I think they were a couple that was truly a love match. Adelaide Herman was compiling notes, playbills, posters to write her memoirs and to write a book, but that book was never written and was never published. Recently, Margaret Steele wrote a book on her, so there's starting to be more out there. Please, listeners, if you are passionate about this, please research and write something, keep her alive, and I would love a copy of what you create. Huge thanks to our guest, Paul Draper, researcher London Reynolds, and Mike Elisalde of Spectral Motion. If you'd like to learn more about Adelaide Herman, we have amazing pictures, links, and more on our website. You can find music and books featured in this episode in the shop on our website, whatshernamepodcast.com. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we post lots of photos each week. There was so much to talk about during this episode that we had to leave a lot of great stuff out. So later this week, we'll actually be adding some bonus audio content from my interview with Paul Draper on our website about women in modern magic, some of the problems and advances that have been happening in the magic community, and much more. Music for this episode was provided by Peak Duo, Amanda Setlick-Wilson, Maymay Segura, Jeff Kuno, Jeremy Didis, Maria Jeffers, and the College Conservatory of Music at the University of Cincinnati. Our theme song was composed and performed by Daniel Foster Smith. This episode was edited by Olivia Mickle, and What's Her Name is produced by Olivia Mickle and Katie Nelson. <laughs>